0: They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. There's a professor by the name of Nassim Talib who wrote a fascinating book about a concept called anti Fragility, And in this book, he describes that there's three basic kinds of systems, that on the one hand, you have what's called a fragile system. And when a fragile system comes under stress, it most likely crumbles. But then on the other hand, you've got a robust system. And when a robust system comes under stress, it has more resilience than a fragile system does, so it will last longer, potentially even endure its way through stress. But then there's a whole nother kind of system, he says. Not a fragile system or a robust system, but an anti-fragile system. And an anti-fragile system is different because when an anti-fragile system comes under stress, it's not just resilient. It doesn't just endure. An anti-fragile system actually gets stronger while it goes through stress. Stress. Now, for example, like a candle would be a fragile system. The wind blows and the candle blows out. A torch would be a robust system that the wind blows and the flame might die down for a little while, but it will last longer than the candle, maybe even endure and, and stay lit through the wind. But then there's an anti-fragile system, and that's a wildfire. The wind, the wind blows, the wildfire grows bigger and spreads faster than it did before. Now, over the last two years, our society has undergone a lot of stress. And we have found, as a culture, that a lot of the things people looked to for strength ended up being weak. That a lot of the institutions people looked to to ground their lives were maybe robust at their best, but oftentimes were just fragile. And so I don't know what kind of season you're in here this morning, whether you're in a a season of stress or it's a good season, but we do know that we all go through seasons of stress and struggle. And so the question I want to explore with you today is, how do you build an anti-fragile faith so that when those seasons come, we emerge on the other side stronger than we were before? How do you build an anti-fragile faith? Back in 2019, so right before the pandemic, the Barna Group came out with a book. Barna is a kind of a Christian research firm, and they released a book in 2019 called Faith for Exiles. And in this book, they examined a generation of young people that had grown up in the church and are now young adults. So they looked at these people from ages 18 through 29. These are American young adults who grew up in church, and they sought to classify the faith of these young people. Where were they now? And they classified their faith into one of four categories. In the first category, you have the prodigals. And these are young people who grew up in church, but they no longer identified as followers of Jesus. The second category is no-mans. And these are young people who grew up in church, and, and they would call themselves Christians, but they're not really engaged in the life of the church at all, haven't attended church in the last month. And then the third category is habitual churchgoers. And, and these young people, they, they grew up in the church and they would still call themselves Christians and they attend church at least once a month, but they don't actually exhibit the behaviors and the lifestyle and the beliefs that would be consistent with people we'd consider disciples of Jesus. The fourth category is resilient disciples. Disciples. And these are young people who grew up in church. They've made a personal commitment to Jesus and kept it. They believe in the authority of scripture. They're actively engaged in the church to this day. They're trying to live out their faith Monday through Saturday. They believe that their beliefs should make a difference in the world. And so of these young people that grew up in church, how many of those 18 to 29-year-olds, take a guess, do you think classified now as resilient disciples? 10%. 10%. So let me ask you again, how do we build an anti-fragile faith? Open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel's in your Old Testament, which is the first section of your Bible that happens all uh, before Jesus is born. Uh, So Daniel's actually about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. This whole book, this story of Daniel, happens about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and set the scene for you. For the next six weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of Daniel together, and we're calling this series Life in Babylon. And here's why. Because in the book of Daniel, the Jews, God's people, have been conquered. This Babylonian army led by their king, Nebuchadnezzar, has come, conquered Jerusalem, and then Nebuchadnezzar took back with him most of the prized possessions of the Jews. He took them back with him to Babylon, but he didn't just take their stuff. Nebuchadnezzar also took some of their most prized people. Nebuchadnezzar, he took kind of the cream of the crop of the Hebrew teenagers and he brought them back to Babylon to serve him in his empire. And Daniel was one of those Hebrew teenagers who was taken from Jerusalem and transplanted in Babylon. And he's the one who writes this book, tells this story for us. So for a second, before we dive into the text, let's just put ourselves in Daniel's shoes. Can you imagine being taken from your home? I taken from the people that you love. Like, let's imagine it was right here. Imagine this church building was just a pile of rubble. Imagine Lucas Oil Stadium has been knocked down. Hummel Park is burning. The houses in your neighborhood are just smoldering piles of ashes, and you've been taken to a foreign, hostile land. Put yourself in those shoes. And a lot of us, we've seen some pretty haunting pictures this week, haven't we? Over a million people now have fled Ukraine, fleeing from their homes. And a lot of them, their homes are destroyed. They may never go back. And we've seen these pictures and our hearts break for these people. That's the kind of scenario Daniel's in here. He's writing in that context. And yet for Daniel, it wasn't like he was just fleeing for freedom. He'd been taken. And now he's being stuck in the empire, forced to work for them, the very same people who destroyed his home and took him from the people that he loves. And so Daniel is now wrestling with this reality. How do I live out an anti-fragile faith in a hostile world? How do I keep my faith from crumbling in Babylon? Because Babylon was the most powerful empire that the world had ever even seen up to that point. And and listen, Babylon was a real city. It was a real historical empire. These are actual real facts that we're going to be discussing. But Babylon is also this kind of metaphor, this symbol that's woven through Scripture to describe the dark spiritual forces that are at work in every empire throughout history. And so the Bible would say, actually, it's not just Daniel. It's that you and I are living in Babylon, too. So, how do we live an anti fragile faith in Babylon? I got to sit in on a couple of Zoom calls this week with some of our global impact partners from TCI there in Ukraine. I won't mention any names or anything for security reasons, but it was humbling hearing these brothers and sisters share their stories of what they've been going through the last couple of weeks. And and one of these brothers there in Ukraine, by God's grace, uh, they're safe. They've been able to flee to the Western portion of the country. But he said, man, even just the last two weeks, I read my Bible totally differently now. I get it. So much of the Bible was written to exiles from exiles. He said, man, now that I've had to flee my home, I I understand now. And even this morning, that same Ukrainian brother is preaching at a church there in Ukraine to these people, telling them what it means to be God's people scattered in exile far from home. It's humbling, isn't it? You and I have never had to go through anything like that. And yet, he would tell you today that their faith has proven to be an anti-fragile faith, that their faith is deeper and their love is stronger than it was before. And so even though you and I are worshiping here today in wealth and security and freedom, the Bible would tell us that we're strangers too. We're going through a similar experience. We're we're exiles. Over and over, Scripture says this in places like 1 Chronicles 29. David says, we are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, he says, I'm a stranger on earth. Jesus says about us in John 17, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, their mind, speaking of everybody who's not a part of God's people, they, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says it to the church in first Peter chapter two, he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. The writer of Hebrews says it here, speaking about the fathers of the Jewish faith in Hebrews 11, he says they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. We're strangers here. A lot of you wake up every morning and you go to work in Babylon, in the school district or in the medical system or on college campuses. And and we wrestle with these questions. How do we live out our faith here? Maybe you've asked these questions before, like when, when do I stand up and say enough is enough or when do I just go with the flow to try to build a relationship? D- do I speak up and risk losing my job or do I stay quiet and, and wait for an open door, maybe in an individual one-on-one conversation? Am, am I hiding my light under a bushel if I don't argue for my convictions? Or am I damaging my witness if I do speak up and I argue for biblical truth? These are the questions we wrestle with trying to live out an anti-fragile faith here. The question is the same as Daniel's. How do we live out our faith in a society that says we're the away team? We're not the home team. We never have been the home team, never will be. Following Jesus has always been countercultural in every culture in history. So how do we live out our faith as the away team? That we're the visitors here. There's more people in the stands booing us than cheering us. And in fact, in our world, following Jesus is not even just something that's often just seen as morally neutral, like take it or leave it, you can do that if you want to. But increasingly in our society, following Jesus is seen as something that's morally negative. It's actually toxic and harmful to society, and we and our beliefs are seen as bigoted and intolerant. So how do we live out an anti-fragile faith in a world like that? Let me draw three principles for you here from Daniel chapters one and two. And here's the first one. Draw your line. Draw your line. Right, we're gonna read all of Daniel chapter one here. It's a long chunk of text, but hang with me. Um, I'll read the words in white, and I want you to read aloud the words in yellow. These are the words of the Lord. Daniel chapter one. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off into Babylonia and put, the tre- and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. By the way, you're welcome that I didn't make you read the names. <laughs> if we want to live out our an anti fragile faith in Babylon, here's the first principle we need to know draw your line. Draw your line, that's what we just saw Daniel do here. Daniel gets deported to this foreign land, and the Babylonians, they were experts in brainwashing. Their goal was to take these four young men and to make them forget their identity, to make them forget who they were, basically to turn them into droids, just to wipe their hard drive so that they could be an asset for the empire. And you know what Daniel says? Okay. Like, I, I'm amazed at just how far Daniel goes here to cooperate with those in power over him. He submits, like, he's, he's a good employee. I mean, these are the same people who destroyed his homeland, took him from the people that he loves, but he doesn't react with bitterness or apathy. Daniel says, yes, you can take me from my home. yes. You can take me from the people that I love. Yes, you can castrate me as a eunuch. Yes, you can change my name. Yes, you can teach me the history of your pagan empire. Yes, you can teach me about your idols and astrology. And yes, King, I will work my absolute best to be the best possible help to you that I can. But no, I'm gonna draw the line right here. Not gonna eat that food. It's amazing, isn't it? That even though Daniel was young, he's a teenage boy, not often known for their wisdom, right? Okay. But he had something instilled so deeply within him that even in Babylon, he knew who he was. They couldn't wipe that part of the hard drive. He knew that he was part of God's people and that that meant he was supposed to live differently. And this is our calling as a church, not just for those who work in the treehouse, not just for those of us who are parents or grandparents. This is our call for all of us to instill these truths so deeply in the hearts of our young people that they know who they are, that they're part of God's people, and that those convictions will shape the way they live and last, even as they take their faith out into a world that is increasingly hostile toward them. This is our calling. This Barna study from a few years ago found that for those who did classify as resilient disciples, there were five core practices that shaped them. Practice number one was that Jesus formed their identity. Their identity was formed by the pages of scripture, by who Jesus said they were, not by their sports teams or their likes or their dislikes or their skills or their family or what group they hung out with or what they wanted to be when they grew up. Jesus formed their identity. That was thing number one. Thing number two, is that uh, the, the church had helped them growing up to develop muscles of discernment, to think from a biblical worldview, to think like a Christian. Principle number three was that growing up in the church, they'd been given intergenerational relationships. That they got to rub shoulders with people who were different than they were. That they got to know people who had walked roads they hadn't walked before. Listen, this is something that God has given us as a church. He's handing us this on a silver platter. We just gotta not mess it up, okay? We can have this kind of unity here. Fourth principle is this. The church had trained them for the workplace with intentional vocational discipleship. That means the church had told these young people how to live out their faith at work. And the fifth thing was this. The church had engaged them in a countercultural kingdom mission. That these young people had been taught how to live for Jesus in a world that was telling them to live for themselves. And these four things grounded their identity in such conviction that they continued to be resilient disciples. And this is the same convictions and identity that shaped Daniel. And with these convictions deeply rooted inside Daniel and his four friends, They decided where they were gonna draw the line. Now, these are two themes that are gonna come up over and over and over and over again throughout this book. Prayer and community, prayer and community, prayer and community. When they're thinking about where they're gonna draw the line, they talk to each other and they talk to God. Prayer and community. We don't live out our faith in Babylon alone. But with God's help and with the help of one another, they decided, yeah, we can say yes here, but we better say no here. And to be honest, we don't totally know why Daniel decided not to eat this food. I don't think it's just because he had a strong conviction that a keto diet was the way to go, okay? It's like, I swear, if any of you use this text to try to tell me not to eat steak, we're not gonna be friends anymore, all right? Like, I like my Oreos, I like my steak, I'm gonna keep at it, okay? Anyway, there's a right way to apply the Bible and a wrong way. We don't know why he chose not to eat this food. Maybe it didn't go along with the kosher food laws of the Jews. Maybe the food had been sacrificed to idols. We don't know. Maybe there was nothing wrong with the food at all. Maybe Daniel just knew he had to draw the line somewhere that at some point he had to stand up and say, no Babylon, I don't belong to you, I have a higher king. And and, and, and food, right? It, it seems like such a relatively inconsequential thing. Really, Daniel, you're gonna draw the line at broccoli? That's where you're gonna take your stand? And yet it was Daniel's faithfulness in the little things that built up the spiritual muscles in him so he would be able to have faithfulness in the big things that we're gonna see throughout this book later on. And this is what God does. Daniel chooses to be faithful in the small things and God blesses him for it. He makes Daniel and his buddies 10 times smarter than all the others. Listen, they could have studied day and night for three years and they wouldn't have been 10 times smarter. Sometimes the enemy's gonna lie to you and he's gonna tell you you have to cheat to get ahead. That yeah, maybe you just make some concessions here and there and you'll get where you wanna go that the ends justify the means, no they don't. They never do. And, and a very tragic illustration of this is if you look around at a lot of the mainline Protestant denominations in our country, a few years ago, I don't know their motives and their heart, I believe their motives were probably mostly good. But they decided they were gonna need to blur the lines a little bit. They're gonna need to shift their beliefs and change their doctrine to kinda keep pace with the culture so they wouldn't be offensive, so they wouldn't lose their influence. And listen, I'm rooting for those churches, not against them, we need them. We're all on the the same team, we want them to win. And yet now because of that, those denominations are hemorrhaging and they've lost their distinctiveness and their momentum and they have proven to be fragile in a world that needs the church to be anti-fragile. And yet by contrast, we see here Daniel's faithfulness in one little tiny decision about vegetables. And here we are 2,600 years later still telling the story. There's a preacher in New York named John Tyson who illustrates it like this. He calls this graph here the horizon of significance. And so on the one axis, you have significance. On the other axis, you have time. And here's the way the world judges significance. You have this one big event that happens. Bam, look at that. Uh, Babylon just took over Jerusalem. Look who got elected. Look at what this celebrity said to that person. And look what this person did. And the news is blowing up and it's all over social media and people are tweeting about it and making memes about it and sending it to their friends, right? It's all over the place, it's the big thing. But next week, there's another big thing. And the significance of that thing that everybody thought was so important just tapers off over time. So look at the horizon of significance of that event was actually relatively small. That's the way the world thinks of significance, your 15 minutes of fame. But let me show you how significance works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it's little acts of faithfulness over the long time, little moment by moment decisions of obedience to King Jesus that bear exponential fruit. And so look at the horizon of significance here as you choose to be faithful to your spouse day in and day out, as you choose to invest in your kids and take a few extra moments to listen to that coworker and have integrity in the workplace, and as you choose to become a person who's gonna spend time with Jesus every day in prayer and a person who's gonna give out of your financial resources to the work of God's kingdom. As Daniel says, no, I'm not gonna eat that meat. And as his buddies say, no, I'm not gonna bow down to that statue. And as Daniel says, I know you want me to quit praying, but I'm not going to. And those little decisions of faithfulness bear eternal fruit. This is how significance works in God's kingdom. We're different. And the way Daniel was able to do that, the text says, was that he decided ahead of time, before the moment ever came. So that when the moment of decision came, the deciding had already been done. The text says that he had already purposed in his heart that he would not be defiled. So have you already decided where you're gonna draw the line? Have you already resolutely decided, yeah, I'm going to be a person who's shaped by the Bible and not by Babylon? Have you decided where you're going to draw the line when it comes to money, when it comes to sex, when it comes to power? Have you already decided where you're going to draw the line in that relationship and where you're going to draw the line when you're under pressure at work? Have you already decided? And you do need to decide right now because the difficult reality of this is that as we live in Babylon, some of you will be forced to draw a line that's going to put your career in jeopardy or relationship at risk, and that's tough. But this means that anti-fragile faith in Babylon means as God's people, we gotta be willing in prayer and in community to draw a line. That's the first thing, here's the second thing. Anti-fragile faith means we draw your line and you hit your knees. In Daniel chapter two, the king has this dream. And the king kinda calls all of his wise men in together to interpret the dream and the wise men show up on the scene they're like, all right, king, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it. And the king says, you're the wise men, you tell me the dream. And here's what they say in verses 10 and 11. It says, the astrologers answered the king. There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the humans So the the king decides, well, hey, if my wise men can't do that, I don't really know why I keep the wise men around. So he decides to kill all the wise men. Now, that includes Daniel and his buddies. And so when Daniel and his friends hear that they're going to be executed, what do you think Daniel does? Well, he, he doesn't flee the country. He doesn't go to the whiteboard to map out a strategic plan. He doesn't call in a few political favors. He hits his knees. Prayer and community Verses 17 through 18, here's what it says. It says, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Prayer and community. We're gonna come back to it over and over and over again because we're gonna see that Daniel's great spiritual strength came from his sustained spiritual habits. And if that's true, then that means the greatest threat to God's people in Babylon is not the wickedness of the world, but the prayerlessness of the church. If you and I face a crisis and our gut reaction is to default to our own wisdom and abilities, we're gonna fail every single time. But Daniel, hits his knees. And he doesn't say, hey, we're gonna pray for a plan. He says, prayer is the plan. And so throughout this series, we wanna devote ourselves to prayer as a church, seeking God's will for us and for the world around us. And so if you're willing to join in with us on that, we would love to just send you a prayer prompt. Every weekday during this series, what I want you to do is pull out your phone right now and I want you to text at... PCC pray all lowercase, at PCC pray to the number 81010. Now, if you look in your bulletin, it's printed in the bulletin wrong, so don't do that. We did that just to keep you on your toes, okay? Um, but, but do it right there, at PCC pray to 81010. We're not gonna spam you, not gonna sell your information, but we wanna send you one text a day because during this series, we wanna devote ourselves to prayer like Daniel did so that we can live an anti-fragile faith in Babylon. We're gonna draw our line, we're gonna hit our knees, and here's the third thing. Draw your line, hit your knees, and the third thing is this, remember your king. Remember your king. They pray, and God does reveal the dream to Daniel. And Daniel goes in to interpret it for King Nebuchadnezzar. You should go read Daniel chapter two this week because Nebuchadnezzar's dream is crazy. You're gonna read it and think, what is this dude tripping on? But God is actually the one who sent him the dream. And Daniel goes in to interpret it. And this dream Nebuchadnezzar had was he saw this statue in his dream. There's a statue that has a head of gold and arms of silver and a midsection of bronze And then legs of iron and feet of clay. And then in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's this big rock that comes rolling down and smashes this statue to smithereens. And he's troubled by this. And so Daniel comes in to interpret the dream. And he says, hey, king, God showed me the meaning of your dream and here's what it means. He says, that head of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You have an incredible empire. And those arms of silver, there's gonna be another empire that comes after you. It's gonna be good, but not quite as good. And that he's referring there to the Persian Empire. And that midsection of bronze, there's gonna be a third empire after that. It's gonna be fine, but it's not gonna be quite as majestic. That's referring to the Greeks, Alexander the Great. And then there'll be an empire coming after that. Those legs of iron, this empire is gonna be really strong. He's talking about the Roman Empire. He says, but all of them, they just have feet of clay. The feet of clay is not very strong. Clay crumbles and breaks easily. And sure enough, what about that rock that rolls down and smashes these empires? Here's what Daniel says about the rock, verses 44 through 47. Daniel says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Daniel's got guts here because Daniel is telling the most powerful man that the world had ever seen up to that point, that history is not about him. In fact, if you go back and read Daniel chapters one and two, it becomes pretty obvious. This book is not about Nebuchadnezzar. This book is not about Daniel or his buddies Shack, and Benny. <gasps> the message of this book is not be like Daniel. The message of this book is trust God And if you look back through, you'll see that God has been the one at work all the time. God is the one who caused Jerusalem's defeat. God is the one who causes the royal official to show favor to Daniel. God is the one who made Daniel and his friends strong and healthy and skilled and wise. God is the one who sends the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and enables Daniel to interpret it. God is the one who reveals mystery. God is the king of kings. And just in case the kingdoms of this world strike fear into your heart, and just in case you look around and all you can see is the Babylon around you, Remember your king, church, because in his kingdom, when, when the little tyrants and the little empires of this world set themselves up against our king, do you think they'll stand? They've got feet of clay. They're gonna crumble every time. So what about our king? What about our kingdom? Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Remember your king. One preacher illustrated it like this. Isaiah, the prophet says this in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. All right, so compared to our king and his kingdom, Isaiah says, the kingdoms of earth, the nations, they're just a drop in a bucket. I've got a bucket full of water here. I've got my dropper. Would you like to see what the kingdoms of the world are compared to the kingdom of our God? All right, here come the nations. You guys ready? Here come the nations. Here they come. Any minute now. Here come the nations. Watch out. Here they come. Behold, (laughs) the nations. Nations past, nations present, nations future. What are they compared to our king? Isaiah says they're like dust on the scales. I've got scales here. These scales actually work. They're not rigged. Here's a rock representing the kingdom of God like it did in Daniel's dream. And I've got some sawdust. Would you guys like to see how the sawdust measures up? Would you like to see how the kingdoms of earth compared to the kingdom of God? How do you think it's gonna go? <laughs> Ready? Here we go. Rome. Babylon. Egypt, Greece, Great Britain, France, Germany, the United States, Russia, I've got some lint in my pocket, Canada, (laughs) I'm kidding, (laughs) kind of. Do they even begin to compare to our king? Do the empires of this world stand a chance against this kingdom? Can I describe our king to you? Isaiah goes on here in chapter 40, describing the God of heaven. And he says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And all God's people said. If you want an anti-fragile faith, even while we're living in Babylon, If your hope and your strength is in anything other than him, if your hope and your strength is in your body or in your relationships or your career or your finances or your kids or your grandkids or your own skill and knowledge and ability, if your hope or your strength is in anything else, then the stresses and the struggles of life in Babylon will tear you away from your strength and you will find yourself fragile and you will crumble with feet of clay. But if your hope and your strength is in him, then the stress and the struggle of life in Babylon can pull you closer to him and you will find yourself stronger than before. And how do I know that? Daniel chapter two, verse 11. We read it earlier. It's where the wise men are protesting King Nebuchadnezzar's audacious request. Look what they say. The wise men said, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and they do not live among humans. Except we know the truth, don't we? That he did. That about 600 years after that, the king of heaven did step down off of his throne and came to live among the humans. And that God came and he wrapped himself in human flesh to become one of us, to embrace our weakness, and to show us what life was like in his kingdom and to show us just what kind of a king he is. If I can just lay my cards on the table this morning, one of the things I'm concerned about in entering into this series, something I'm trying to be cautious of is that an accidental side effect of a series like this through the book of Daniel could be that we would accidentally cause some spiritual pride or arrogance amongst us. It's really easy to slip into an us versus them mentality when we think about the world. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, then maybe you're thinking that. Like, man, what is wrong with you Christians? You guys just think you're better than everybody else, don't you? Well, no, we don't. We don't think we're different because we're perfect people. We think we're different because we have a perfect king and we get to live in his perfect kingdom. And the thing that's gonna keep us humble week in and week out is this thing we do together called communion. where we're gonna take some bread and remember just what kind of king we have. We have a king who'd come all the way here and let his body be nailed on a cross for me and for you. And why did he do that? It's because we failed to draw the line, didn't we? Every one of us has compromised our integrity. And it's because we failed to hit our knees. And every one of us has relied on our own strength instead of his. It's because we failed to remember our king. And there's a lot of days when I'd rather be the king of my life than letting him be the king. And yet we have such a good and gracious king that he came all the way here to die for us so that we could be a part of his kingdom, not because of how good we are, but because of how good that he is. And we want everybody to experience that goodness. So we're gonna take this little piece of bread now and I want you to remember your king and to hit your knees, whether you do it in your heart or you actually do it on the concrete floor. And remember his body. that was nailed on the cross so that you could enter his kingdom. And then we'll pray and we'll take the juice that represents his blood together. Jesus, you are so good. We're not here today, Lord, to sing some songs and hear a pep talk about how to live a better life. We're here to meet you. We're thankful that you came to meet us. Lord, we lift up now our brothers and sisters around the world who are worshiping today in far less safety and security and wealth than we are, and yet they are worshiping in confidence, of your kingship. And I ask that they would remember your strength and that out of your great and mighty power, you would strengthen them and enable them to stand firm in a hostile world. And that through them, your kingdom would would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for my brothers here in the room and my brothers and sisters here who are gonna go out into Sometimes environments that are not friendly to the beliefs that they hold, I'm asking that you'd show them through your Holy Spirit and through the godly people that you've placed in their lives exactly where you want them to draw the line and what it means to stand for you in a gracious and humble and steadfast way. And Father, for all of us, we wanna be a church that hits our knees, a place that is devoted to prayer. We wanna be people who remember that you are our king now and forever. And so we're gonna take this juice together here Jesus, to remember your blood that has washed us clean and enabled us to enter your kingdom. And we praise you for it. And it's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love and our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.